well, as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday, I was thinking of a passage that would hopefully tune our hearts and fix our minds and our focus on the issue of thankfulness. And so I landed for this final message before the Thanksgiving holiday on a passage found in the book of Colossians chapter 3. So I invite you to turn there with me to Colossians chapter 3. The text that I want us to consider is verses 12 through 17. So please follow along as I read these verses and you will notice, especially near the end of this text, the emphasis on thankfulness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are a uniformed society. If you look around and notice, we are very much a uniformed society. People often dress according to their role in life. For example, depending on which branch of military service you are in, you wear a particular uniform. And that uniform marks you out as belonging to the Air Force or the Marines or the Army or the Navy or the Coast Guard or whatever it might be. If you are a policeman, you have a certain uniform. If you are a mailman, you have a different uniform. Athletes have a certain uniform and dress code that they must conform to on the playing field or on the court. In fact, I remember a few years ago hearing about one of the receivers for the Dallas Cowboys being fined by the National Football League because he wore the wrong socks to the game. So what we wear is important in relation to what we are. That is the picture the Apostle Paul is painting for us here in Colossians chapter 3. He is describing certain qualities, certain traits, certain virtues, certain characteristics in the life of a Christian as garments. Certain things that we should take off and throw away, throw in the dirty clothes or throw in the garbage, and certain things that we should put on or clothe ourselves with. And that is the picture, the analogy that Paul is using here in Colossians 3. So I want us to have that framework in our mind, that picture of the put off, put off and put on. Take off these things and put on things to replace them. There's a sense in which everything Paul says here in verses 12 through 17 could be summed up in one verse in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, which says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with Him. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 3. But here in Colossians 3, he's just being more specific about what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. For some people, that is too nebulous. That's too theoretical. Okay, practically speaking, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that look like in specifics? And that's exactly what Paul delineates for us here in Colossians chapter 3. According to verse 10 of this chapter, we already have put on the new man. And of course, Paul is speaking to those who know Christ, those those who have received Christ, those who have trusted Him and been transformed by Him. He says, you have already put on the new man. You are a new creation in Christ. So in verse 12, he basically says this, now you must clothe Him properly. You are a new man. Now put on the clothes that are appropriate to your newness in Christ. And that involves putting off certain things and putting on certain qualities, character traits, practices, etc. So that's the way this chapter unfolds. We're jumping sort of into the middle of it and we don't have time to do an exposition of all of it. But that's the framework. Verses 5 through 9 speak of our old life and we won't have time to look at those in this message. But there are certain practices that we must do away with, we must get rid of, we must, to use Paul's words here, we must kill certain things in our lives. Destroy them. Get rid of them. So that's verses 5 through 9. The bridge from the negative to the positive is verses 10 and 11. They form somewhat of a bridge to go from the things that you put off or get rid of to the things you put on. So we put off the practices of our old life because we are new creations in Christ. But we not only put off the negative, we also put on the positive. And that is what the text is about that we want to consider consisting of verses 12 through 17. It is the put on section. We don't have time to look at the put off. It's simply the put on section. Now, before digging into this text, I want us to look first at a parallel passage that gives us some insight into these verses. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, is a passage that is very similar to this text that we're going to consider. In fact, the two passages were written within a very short time of one another. It is possible that the ink on one had barely, or maybe not even dried yet, when Paul began to dictate the other. Therefore, they are very similar in content, though they are worded differently. So they can give us a little bit different perspective, uh, and yet still trying to communicate the same truth. Ephesians chapter 4, notice verse 17, and we won't really do an exposition of these, time won't allow it. We'll just comment to use it as an introduction for our text in Colossians 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him, and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, those verses are saying this. Don't live like all of the unsaved people around you live. That's what he means by the phrase like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't live like people who don't know God. Live differently. They are spiritually blind. They are spiritually dead. They don't have the life of God in them. You should not live the same way they do. 
You are new in Christ. Therefore, verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, now that you are a Christian, you ought to do away with your former manner of life, the habits, the practices, the characteristics that used to be so much a part of your life before you came to Christ. It is possible here in this text that Paul is alluding to a form of punishment that the Roman government would use at times during the first century. We find from research and historical documents that there were times when someone murdered another individual, the Roman government would strap the dead body to the murderer as his punishment. He had to carry the dead body around with him. That seems to be the image that Paul has in mind here. He's saying, get rid of that old man that you used to be. You don't want to carry the old man around with you. He's dead. You want to be done with him and get rid of him and live a new life. So he says, here's specifically what this new life looks like. Verse 24, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now let me give you some specifics, he says. Therefore, putting away lying, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness... Wrath, anger, loud quarreling, and evil speaking be put away from you. Put those clothes off. Get rid of those clothes with all malice. And instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, Paul says basically the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. He just says it in a different way. And he says it, using more of this imagery of putting off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. Now back to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll look at this text together and see how it builds to the theme that is on our minds at this time of the year, and that is a theme of thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, and that connects us back to these things we're supposed to put off and get rid of. Therefore, verse 12 says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. The therefore connects us in the context back to verse 10, where Paul says, since we have put on the new man, since we are a new man, a new creation, we ought to put on new clothes new practices. And he says, do this. Put them on. These things aren't optional. We can't take them off and put them on at our own whims. No, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, put these qualities on, put these virtues on, and leave them on. This is what how you should dress, as it were, now that you are a Christian. This is how you should clothe yourself. But before delineating this new wardrobe, Paul tells us why we ought to dress like this. He says in verse 12, because we are chosen, holy, and beloved by God. You see, that is our motive. That is our incentive. 
That's what compels us to live this way. You know as well as I do, there are times in the Christian life when you don't want to be kind or you don't want to be long-suffering or whatever, whatever this is. But it doesn't depend on how we feel at a given time. That's not our motive. We don't say, oh, I'm going to do this because I really feel like being kind now. No, we say, you know what? My motive, my incentive, my compulsion is because God chose me to be one of His children. God has set me apart as holy and God loves me so that I am one of His beloved. That's our motivation. It doesn't change with how we're feeling on a given day or what kind of mood we are in. This is our incentive. We are, first of all, it says, elect or chosen. God has chosen out of the world, chosen us out of the world to be His children. Therefore, the implication is we ought to display His character. Everyone who is in the body of Christ, everyone who is in the family of God has been chosen by God before the world began. We are not Christians, beloved, simply by our own choice, our own decision. We are Christians because we have been chosen by God. And God has a specific purpose in choosing us. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, we were chosen to live unto the One who has chosen us. But not only are we chosen, verse 12 says, we are holy as well. The basic meaning of this word is set apart. God chose us and set us apart for His purposes, for His glory, for His namesake. That's what the word holy means. Set apart, unique. And God's choosing us and setting us apart stems from His deep, unconditional, undeserving love for us. That's why verse 12 says we are beloved of God. There was no reason why God should love us. We don't deserve the love of God. We can't earn it or merit it. But it is His gracious choice to bestow His love to us. So all three of these terms describe our favored, privileged position. And that is our incentive to carry out what is asked of us. Since we are chosen of God, beloved by God, and set apart for God, we are to put on a lifestyle, we are to put on clothing consistent with our position. Now Paul, having said elect, holy, and beloved, is going to center in on that last adjective, the word beloved of God. God has chosen to bestow His love on us. Therefore, in Paul's mind, this is the way it works, therefore, we ought to treat each other accordingly. If God chose to bestow this love on us, we ought to choose to bestow that on each other. Isn't this what the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.11? Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So that is the trigger. That is the connection in Paul's mind. So he says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Let's briefly mention each of these individually. The first character trait, the first piece of clothing we are to put on, if you will, is tender mercies, as some versions say, or a heart of compassion, another translation renders it. Interestingly, the old King James Version used the phrase bowels of mercies. We've talked about this in the past. That sounds crass to us, bowels of mercies. But the Hebrew always expressed his emotions in physiological terms, not abstractions. 
Whenever you feel strongly for someone or about something, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. And that's why the literal reading here is put on bowels of mercy or tender mercies, a heart of compassion. It refers to the heart of compassion we are to have in relation to one another. That's the first garment we put on. The next garment we are to put on is kindness. I suppose we don't even really need to define kindness. We know what kindness is. We just need to practice it. Good old-fashioned kindness. It is so sad to me that some conservative evangelical Christians think it is virtuous to be harsh and unkind. And they usually justify it by saying, you know, I'm standing for the truth. Well, yes, we are to stand for the truth. Jude says, defend the faith which has been delivered to the saints, but let's keep in mind whom we're fighting. Let's not confuse the enemy. God says, clothe yourself in kindness. The third quality listed here that should characterize our lives, the third piece of clothing we're to put on is humility. Humility is the attitude of total submission and servitude in relation to God. God, whatever you want in my life, however you want to work with me, however you want to work through me, whatever you want to do to me, for your name's sake, I accept that. It's interesting to me that among the Greeks there was no word for humility because they didn't believe in it. The Greeks were the ultimate humanists and that was the environment in which the early church had to live and had to fight that tendency. As Paul says in Romans 12, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. The people, the, the believers of the first century were continu- continually told in, in numerous ways that humility was something to despise and God says humility is something to exalt. Humility is our relationship to God or how we relate to Him. While the next word here in this list, meekness or gentleness, depending on your translation, is our relationship toward others. If we have humility before God, that comes out in meekness or gentleness toward others. This is such an important virtue for us to live out. In fact, it is so important that Paul says it should be a hallmark of spiritual leadership. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The servant of the Lord must not be argumentative, but be gentle unto all men. God wants spiritual leaders to model that because God wants all of His people to model that. Then the final word in this list is long-suffering. If I'm not mistaken, the New American Standard Bible and the NIV translate this Greek word as patience, which might be a little bit misleading because this word, this particular Greek word, means not getting angry with people, specifically. Not losing your patience with people, whereas uh, there is another Greek word, translated patience sometimes in the New Testament, which refers to not getting angry at circumstances. That is, you don't get mad when you, uh, you know, you're going down the road and a rock hits your windshield and chips it. You know, you don't lose your patience and yell at the person who... who who's flung the rock at your your windshield or whatever. But this is specifically in relation to people. Long-suffering, slow-tempered in relation to people. You probably have realized by now that these virtues are a part of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. So what that means is we can't produce these on our own. We can't crank this out. But we can exercise our will by faith to see these produced in us by the Spirit of God. It's sort of like, a, like power steering in your car. When you turn the wheel, 
The power steering actually kicks in and turns the tires for you. It, 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 it's this uh, working relationship in a similar way when by faith we say, Lord, I want to have these virtues. And we ask the Lord for them and, and, and we repent when we don't display them and we say, Lord, build these into my life. Then the Spirit of God takes over from there. It's not a passivity. We're not passive in the process. But we cannot in and of ourselves just crank these out. We can't say, I'm going to be like this if it kills me because it will kill us. We can't do that. So there's this working relationship between that is throughout the New Testament between our will, our determination to live a certain way and the Spirit of God enabling us and building it into our lives. So those are the attitudes with which we are to clothe ourselves. Those are attitudes. But those attitudes spring forth in actions. In those actions are listed in verse 13. We have the attitudes... And built on that, or coming on top of that, are actions. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Forbearing one another simply means to put up with each other's quirks. To put up with each other's oddities to put up with each other with the attitudes that were just mentioned in verse 12. Now, beloved, let's face it. We all have things about us that are weird. Every one of us. We have idiosyncrasies and we have these, you know, these certain character traits. And, and, but if we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, then we, we can forbear that. We don't try to make everyone like us. You have to be just like me. No, we forbear. The literal rendering of this word is hold yourself back from flying out at one another. But we don't only forbear. This verse says we are to forgive as well. This word for forgive, it's an interesting word. It's not the the normal word for forgive throughout the New Testament. It's an intensified word. You could almost paraphrase it. Forgive immediately and completely. That's a strong term. Grudges have no place in the Christian life because they may lead to the sins of verses 8 and 9, where we are told to put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, etc. Verse 13 says, we are to forgive even if there is reasonable cause for complaint. Did you hear that? Forgive even if there is reasonable cause for complaint. He says, if anyone has a complaint against another, you still forgive. There's no basis for, for refusal to forgive. If anyone had ground not to forgive, it was the Lord, but He forgave us. Verse 13 says that's the way we are to forgive. Over and over, Jesus taught His disciples that their forgiveness of others ought to be equivalent to the Father's forgiveness of them. That's why when they said, Lord, teach us to pray, He said, okay, pray this way. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If you've read the Gospels, you know that many of the parables of our Lord were about forgiveness. How ridiculous to hold a grudge against someone while embracing God's forgiveness. We are to forbear one another and we are to forgive one another. Notice that this passage is climbing, as it were. Verse 12 deals with attitudes. Verse 13 deals with actions. Verse 14 reaches the apex. Because verse 14 says... But above all these things, it's almost, again, keep this clothing 
uh, imagery in your mind. You've put all these clothes on now as a big coat to throw over all of it or a big poncho to throw over all of it. Above all these things or on top of all of these garments, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That completes your wardrobe. You have everything on and you put love on top of all of it. Love is the lifeblood of all the other virtues. It's the apex. In a sense, the qualities in verses 12 and 13 define love for us, but there's also a sense in which love goes beyond them. Love is the goal. It's the ultimate. It stands above all other virtues. That's why in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, He said, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And that is why in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul said, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And that's why Romans 13, 9 says, All the commandments are summed up by love. Galatians 5, 6 says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Without love, without love, all we have here is a list of legalistic attitudes and actions. That's all it is. They must come from the Holy Spirit, producing them in our lives and be tied together with love. Now, as we go to verse 15, we turn a corner in a sense. Obviously, the verse is connected with the previous ones, but verses 15 through 17 can also stand on their own. These verses give three factors that should control or govern our lives as Christians. Those three factors are the peace of Christ, the Word of Christ, and the name of Christ. Notice verse 15. And let the peace of Christ... Now, some of your versions uh, might have the peace of God. There's a, mar- there's a textual issue here, which I'm not going to get into. Let the peace of God or the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule. The concept of peace in the New Testament is a fascinating one because it is so multifaceted. It really is a combination of both the Hebrew and Greek aspects of peace. Let me give the three different perspectives of the word peace, the three different perspectives that the word peace carries with it, and then I want to show you how they all come together in this passage. First of all, the Greek idea behind the word peace is that of an agreement or a pact or a treaty. That is a peace treaty. That's how the word was mostly used by the Greeks. The Hebrew idea behind the word peace is that of inner tranquility. Most of you have heard the Hebrew word shalom, peace be to you. This, the idea of everything in place, everything in life is, is okay, it's good, it's this tranquility. And from, these, from those two put together, the word peace also signifies harmony in relationships. Now, all three of those ideas or concepts are here in this verse. We have a peace treaty with Jesus Christ that results in an inner attitude of security and serenity which should result in harmonious relationships with one another. All three aspects are brought together here. Before we were saved, we were at war with Jesus Christ. We were on opposite sides. But when we received Him as Lord and Savior, He took us on His side and the war ended. He wrote a peace treaty with His blood. We are now at peace with Him. 
As a result, that's the Greek idea, as a result, we are no longer in turmoil within. Here comes the Hebrew idea. Christ reigns in our hearts and He gives us peace. So the peace of Christ is both a fact and a feeling. I want to interject something at this point that that sometimes helps in making decisions in life. That's one of the most difficult things for all of us as Christians when we try to determine what is God's will in this situation, what decision should I make here, etc. There are two questions that we can ask ourselves whenever we are perplexed about a decision. Now, these two questions don't answer everything by any means, but at least they are good starters. Question number one is this. We can ask this question. Is my decision, I'm torn between one or the other, and I'm going to think I'm going to go this way. Is my decision in accord with the fact that I am on Christ's side now? Does this line up with the fact that I am now at peace with Christ? Or is there something about this decision that, that it runs contrary to the fact that I am at peace with Christ? Secondly, will this decision leave me with an inner sense of security, confidence, and peace? Or is it going to leave me in turmoil, wondering, well, was the Lord really pleased with that, or should I have done that? Should I have said that? That is in a practical way, or at least partial practical way, how the peace of Christ can govern our lives. But verse 15 is is going even beyond those two aspects of peace to that third aspect I mentioned, and that is this. Because we are at peace with Christ, and because we have the peace of Christ in our hearts, the result should be harmony or peace in our relationships with one another. There's a sense in which verse 15 is an appeal for unity in the body of Christ. In In the context, that's the way it's building. It is saying, put on all of these things, tender mercies, kindness, humility, bear with one another, forgive one another, Uh, love one another so there can be peace in relationships. So with that in mind, look at the verse again. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body. There's the idea. And be thankful. And be thankful. The peace of Christ should result in a tremendous unity in the body. We were all called into this one body, this verse reminds us. A.W. Tozer used to illustrate it this way. He said, if you had 100 pianos in a room and you wanted them to all be tuned the same, you would not begin by tuning them to one another. You would have a disaster after a while. You couldn't keep up. You'd, You'd have a mess. Instead, you tune them all to the same tuning fork and then they'll be in tune with each other. That's the idea here. If we're all in tune with Jesus Christ, if we are at peace with Him and we are having or allowing His peace to govern our hearts and lives, then that should result in being in tune with each other. And at the end of the verse, Paul says, and be thankful. Thankfulness allows peace to rule. Let me say that again. Thankfulness allows peace to rule. How is that? Well, you show me a church where people are complaining and murmuring and, and uh, discontent, and I'll show you a church where there's disharmony. But you show me a church where people are thankful to the Lord, appreciative of what the Lord is de- doing in and through their lives, and in and through their church family, and I'll show you a church that allows the peace of Christ to rule. We are to be thankful thankful for the privilege of being in the family of God, being in the body of Christ. For some reason, we sometimes slip into a mindset 
that God was obligated to take us into His family. Or that Christ was obligated to take us into His body. He should be thankful He has me. We would never say it that way. But that can be our attitudes. We lose sight of the fact that it is a privilege. And we should therefore not do things to divide the body unnecessarily. So verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule. Then verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The word dwell here in this verse is, is a Greek word related to the, the word house, interestingly. So verse 16 is saying this, let the Word of Christ be at home in your life. It is sad but true that in the lives of some Christians, the Word of Christ is a stranger. They don't know it. They aren't familiar with it. It doesn't dwell in them. It's not comfortable in their lives. It hasn't taken root. It hasn't settled down to be at home. It's in a sense a foreigner. It is sad to see how biblically illiterate many church members are in our nation. And the sad thing about it is that it's often that way even in leadership. Churches are filled with pastors and board members who don't really know what the Word of Christ says. Oh, they might be able to quote a verse here or there to support a position. But verse 16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it dwell in you abundantly. It's more than just having your devotions hit and miss now and then. One of the most important attitudes the church can have is an attitude of submission to the Word of Christ. That way, whenever the Word is introduced on a subject, the immediate response is, okay, that's what the Word says. That's what we'll do. We'll follow it. But sometimes we are very much like the church at Corinth. As we have seen in recent days, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, there's a sense in which he had to argue his way through both of his letters. He had to just build all these elaborate arguments to prove the point. Why? Because the Word of Christ did not dwell richly in them. It was sort of a stranger to them and they resisted it. So Paul had to build up his case so often. He couldn't just say, do this, here's what you ought to do. He had to defend it, delineate it. Well, when the Word of Christ abundantly dwells in us, there will be outward results. And verse 16 mentions them. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. As we take in the Word, as we let it dwell in us richly, it ought to stimulate us to spread it to others. This verse says we should teach and admonish one another. The word teach means positive instruction. The word admonishment means to warn. By teaching and admonishing one another, we sharpen each other. As iron sharpens iron, says the book of Proverbs. But notice, please, that it's to be done in all wisdom. Very key phrase. That means not tactlessly. We do it with wisdom. We don't do it abrasively, harshly. Or you know what happens? We get the opposite result of what we want. Instead of it edifying, encouraging, building up, people just put their hands up, whether literally or or emotionally, they just resist. You know, they reject the message because of the messenger. So it's to be done in wisdom. That's the first outflow of the word dwelling richly. A second result of the word dwelling abundantly in us is that we'll have a song in our hearts. That's why verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The word psalms refers to the Old Testament psalms. Sing the psalms. 
Hymns, that word, uh, that is a reference basically to expressions of praise to God. And spiritual songs emphasize personal testimony. What the Lord has done for me in my life in His graciousness. And this verse says we are to sing with grace. That doesn't mean with grace church, by the way. It means our singing should be the outward expression of the inner experience of the grace of God. Because we are filled with gratitude for the grace of God, that graciousness should come out in our singing. But I want you to notice something about this verse. Notice that our singing is to the Lord. To the Lord. The more the Godward aspect of singing is kept in view, the more believers will be built up. Let me say that again. The more the Godward aspect of singing is kept in view, the more believers will be built up. When people sing, when we sing, we are singing to the Lord. When people stand up here in front of us and lead us by singing, they're not singing for us. They're singing to the Lord. The byproduct is we get built up, especially when they really are singing to the Lord. And that's what this verse says. So we are to let the peace of Christ rule. We are to let the word of Christ dwell. And finally, in conclusion, let the name of Christ control. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Notice that it says whatever you do. Whatever you do. There is no sacred or secular for the Christian. We don't live one way on Sunday and another way through the week. We don't use pious language on Sunday, crass language through the week. We don't have attitudes of thoughtfulness and kindness and smiles on Sunday and harshness and abrasiveness through the week. No such thing. There should not be any such thing. Whatever we do, we do as those who bear the name of Christ. We wear it with us wherever we go. I've told you the story in the past about the soldier in the army of Alexander the Great who drew back in the heat of battle. Out of fear, he drew back and pulled away. After the battle was over, this soldier was taken to Alexander the Great to be questioned. And of course, he was mortified at what was going to happen to him. The great military leader looked at him and asked, What is your name, young man? To which the soldier quietly replied, Alexander. Alexander the Great looked at him and said, Son, either change your ways or change your name. That's a valid challenge for us as Christians. If we're going to say, I'm a Christian, then we need to wear that name well. We bear the name, we wear it well. The word Christian means little Christ. That should govern every facet of our behavior. That's why he says, whatever you do in word or deed, in how you talk, in how you live, every facet of life. You know, the Bible doesn't specifically address every situation we might encounter living in the 21st century. We don't have this exhaustive list of rules and regulations. Paul said in Galatians, that is for the stage of immaturity. But our standard is Jesus Christ and our relationship to Him. And that should govern us. The fact that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I bear His name. I wear His name with me everywhere. And if we'll live that way, the result will be thankful hearts. That's why the last phrase in verse 17 says, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
This is the third time in three verses that Paul mentions thankfulness because thankfulness is such a vital part of the Christian life. The end of verse 15 says, and be thankful. The end of verse 16 says, to sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's an expression of thankfulness. And here at the end of verse 17 it says, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is, beloved, this is such a vital part of the Christian life. It's one that we, we dismiss, we forget about. We, when we say, what are some of the key cornerstones of the Christian life? We might say prayer. Well, it is. Scripture memory. Well, it is. A ministry to others. Well, it is. Fellowship. Well, it is. You know, uh, evangelism. Well, it is. Well, why don't we say thankfulness? That's a key one. That is, I mean, to, for the Holy Spirit to say something one time is important, but to repeat it three times in three consecutive verses, we better not miss this. Be thankful. Sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Are you a thankful person? If you are a child of God, you certainly have reason to be thankful. Are you a thankful person. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank You so much for the encouragement from Your Word. Thank You for this rich text of Scripture which, which speaks to us right where we live. Right where we live, day in and day out. The need to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, the importance of bearing with one another, forgiving one another, even if anyone has a complaint against another. The importance of, above all of these things, putting on love and letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, letting the Word of Christ dwell in our hearts, and letting the name of Christ govern everything we do. And may we not miss this this powerful emphasis to be thankful people. To be thankful. To sing with grace in our hearts to You, Father, to the Lord Jesus. To live life giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As we approach this special holiday, this Thanksgiving season, may this truth, may the, the truth of this passage adorn us. May we clothe ourselves in all of these virtues and characteristics. And may we not do so simply as a result of a holiday coming up. But may this be the way we live the expression of our lives 365 days a year. So so as we approach this Thanksgiving season and Thanksgiving holiday, may this passage of Scripture work in our hearts and lives to continue to move us on the track, to move us on the path of sanctification, to be more like Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful name we pray. Amen.